like yours, my family has a few traditions that I really love. And around this time of year, we celebrate one that is fairly new to us. If you don't know, I have three boys, and what we do is we give each of us a NCAA tournament bracket, and we all fill one out. And we do keep score, and this will last from now um, until the day that I go home. Because i got to keep score now so I get those wins racked up, right? Because it's really fun to sit down with your five-year-old and help him fill out a NCAA tournament bracket. Because he doesn't know one team from another. He's more than likely to put Loyola in the final four than he is the one seed, which, of course, if you watched last night, they are in the final four. But Stephen has lived his whole life in Texas, and so he fills out his bracket a certain way. He um, latches on to key words, things he knows, whether it's where his grandparents live um, or that fact that I went to Oklahoma State, um, so did his mom. But when he hears Texas, well, they, they, they win. And so his final four had three Texas teams. I know, we're trying to correct him. But he, he has as his champion Texas Tech, which, oh, that's not the reaction I was hoping for. But so far, he could win. And I'll never forget filling out that bracket with him being like, this, this is crazy. And for a while, I thought A&M might join them in there, um, in which case then I'd feel really foolish. Um, it's also fun just to watch sports with kids, isn't it? Um, how they choose to root or what they're looking for, it's just different. So Stephen, when we've been having these basketball games on, he comes into the room, and in, unless it's Oklahoma State, of course, he doesn't know who to root for because, as you know, train your child how they should go. And but we, didn't, we didn't make the tournament. So... He comes in and he says, Dad, who are we rooting for? And sometimes I care and sometimes I don't. And the times that I care, I say, well, I think I'm going to root for the the team in red. And so he goes, okay. And he knows enough now to look at the score. And if the team in red is winning, he goes, sure, let's let's root for the red team. And maybe he watches for a while. He, He goes to his room to play. He comes back. And now the team in red isn't winning. And so he'll turn to me and say, Dad, I'm not rooting for red anymore. And aren't we just that way sometimes, that it's easy when things are going well? We want to be part of the team when when the victory is ours. But as soon as defeat is coming, that's when we question our commitment in the face of defeat. I, too, want to welcome you this morning. My name is Cale Courtright, and I'm the spiritual formation minister here. Um, You heard from Tim already uh, do our announcements and... I'm not sure I'm going to let him do that ever again, because that went really well, I thought. So um, I got a little bit of protective of my space here. But um, So you met Tim and you met me. Today we're going to continue a series that we're calling Rewrite, um, The Difference of Jesus. And, and we know the difference that Jesus has made in our life. We know what our past looks like. We know the baggage we bring, but we know more so the difference that Jesus has made. We can take the script that the world gives us, and Jesus says, I I will rewrite that script. But as part of that, we know that Jesus does things a little differently. That he doesn't always uh, play by the same rules. He doesn't do things the way that you or I might do them. And so today, we're going to 
think about that, um, considering today is Palm Sunday. And so we're going to look at a Palm Sunday text. And so if you have your Bible with you, turn over to the book of Mark. And while you turn over there, I do want to um, piggyback on a couple of things that Tim said. We do have our, our live streaming up and going um, next week for sure. And we need more volunteers to help this uh, take off. We have a lot more moving parts back there. And so, you know, if you are teachable and if you are ready to serve, that's all you have to be able to do. Um, and so we need your help to make that happen. Um, it is an exciting time across point. We have a lot of things coming uh, with the live stream and the app and, and even our men's conference. And so if you haven't yet downloaded the app, I would encourage you to do so now. You can search for Cross Point Church or Cross Point Church of Christ and you'll find it. And if men, if you haven't yet registered for our men's conference, get on that app and you can do it right now. It won't hurt my feelings. Go ahead, register for our men's conference. And women in here, if you've been trying to get your husband convinced to go, well, go ahead and open up your app and register them. Um, Go ahead and pay for it through the app and tell them, I mean, we're committed now, um, honey, so you might as well go. So uh, I would encourage you to do that. I also wanted to spend just one moment bragging um, on you, um, our church. Yesterday for Grand Prairie was the big event day. And look at that group that we had serve. Isn't that awesome? And Georgia tells me that that overall, the day just went great. We um, are so thankful to God to, for our, the great weather that we had. And I'm so thankful for you because Crosspoint had the biggest group show up to serve. And thank you for representing Crosspoint well and the kingdom well because we know that that is, is what we are about. And so I hope you turned over to Mark. We're going to start in Mark chapter 8 today. And in the book of Mark, this is a transition point. And I want you to think for a second before we read from there what it must have been like to, been, to be one of the apostles. I mean, at the beginning, you're called, and, and as we know, Tim described this a couple of weeks ago, they, these were fishermen and tax collectors. These weren't um, divinity students. These weren't Bible scholars. We know that they had already failed out. That, that's why they're going and doing their trade with their, with their fathers and, and taking up other things because they're not the best of the best. They don't have it in their future to become a rabbi. But then Jesus, who teaches like no one they've ever heard, calls them. And so, of course, they say yes. And, and sometimes I wonder if they knew what they were getting themselves into. Um, they, they had to have their, their wildest dreams imagined. This is a man who can do anything. What Jesus does is incredible. He teaches, as I said, like no one else has, with authority, and he opens up the word in ways that they have never seen. But he also does amazing healings. They eventually will see people raised from the dead. Uh, they will see people on death's doorstep um, make a dramatic and complete healing. And they will also watch Jesus feed the 5,000, which still to me is one of the most, the craziest things. Um, you know, when I go to a buffet, I'm already like, this is amazing. This is, this is incredible. Look at all of this. And what Jesus does, of course, is way higher than that. And so Jesus, they have to be so excited that they said yes, because look at who they are walking around with. I can only imagine them saying, <clears throat> you know, people asking them, you're, you're with Jesus? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm with Jesus. No, no big deal. Uh, Jesus walks in, there's a huge crowd, and you know, I'm with the band. No, no big deal. I'm with Jesus. Um, that had to be an exciting moment. But then Jesus, things start 
to change a little bit. I mean, do you remember growing up in middle school or in high school that something happened that gained you a little bit more popularity for a time or a little bit more notoriety? Maybe you hit the winning shot or at least were on the team that had a great victory. Maybe you did something that you got in the paper and your picture's in the paper and you got to walk around school being like, yeah, that, that's me. You know, even teachers are giving you a pat on the back. Maybe you starred in the musical and everyone just was wowed at your talent. <clears throat> or maybe you aced the test that everyone else struggled with. And so you're walking around a little bit with your chest puffed out, just a little bit more. Do you remember those times? I mean, I don't remember those times, but maybe you remember those times. But I imagine that's what the apostles were feeling like. Only then things changed. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus feeds 4,000 people. He heals someone. But then he takes the apostles on a little bit of a field trip. And they go north to Caesarea Philippi. And it's in this moment that Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? And they give some answers. They say, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say you're one of the, another prophet. And so then Jesus turns the question to them. And he says, you who have been walking with me, who have spent all these moments with me, who have heard every teaching, who have been there when no one else is, who do you say that I am? And of course, it's Peter. <clears throat> it's Peter who stands up and says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You know, they've all been thinking it. They've all been wondering, could this be the one? And finally, someone puts it out there. This is who you are, Jesus. And they know what that means. Paul did a great job of describing what that means just in our communion talk. They know what this, his kingdom will mean. They know who this is. This will be the Savior. They, he will be, they will be saved as a nation from those who oppress them. And think about it if you're an apostle. You're right next to him. What kind of power is coming your way? But Jesus is going to rewrite the script. And starting in verse 31 of Mark chapter 8, the text reads like this. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. And he talked about this openly with the disciples. Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at the disciples, then reprimanded, Peter, get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. So when we read this, considering that we know the end of the story, we wonder, like, Peter, man, you really kind of had a big fail here, right? Like, why'd you put your foot in your mouth, man? Just be quiet. But understand where Peter's coming from. He knows what it means for the Messiah to be here. He knows what it is supposed to mean for the Messiah to come. And not only that, he's seen what Jesus can do. He knows that Jesus can do anything. If he can feed 5,000, if he can raise people from the dead, if he can teach like no one else, then certainly 
this is the Messiah. There has been no other like Jesus. And you can understand when Jesus says that he's going to be killed, and you yourself must pick up your cross. He doesn't see, Peter doesn't see the cross like you and I see the cross. He doesn't know the end of the story. We see the cross as a symbol to be proud of, as a symbol that that gathers us, as something that we wear as jewelry, that we put up outside our church buildings, and that we hang as decoration on the wall. But Peter would have seen it as a sign of disgrace, as something that only the worst of the worst got. You're a criminal. You're an outcast. This is not something for the Messiah. God's anointed, God's chosen, certainly wouldn't pick up and take the cross. And Jesus is rewriting the story of what it means to be the Messiah and for what it means to be his follower. And from this point on, Jesus sets his sights on Jerusalem and the power of this week, of Palm Sunday leading to Easter, is that Jesus knew what Jerusalem had in store for him. The power of this moment of Jesus coming to Jerusalem is that he knew that the cross was what was waiting. And if it's me, and maybe if it's you, I'm not going to Jerusalem. I headed north to Caesarea Philippi, and then I'm going to just keep going, right? I'm not going to turn around and head south towards the cross. I mean, you and I have a hard time going to the dentist, much less going to the cross. But Jesus isn't like you or I or other so-called Christ. He heads straight to Jerusalem. And he gets there in Mark chapter 11. And so turn over there and we'll read starting in verse 1 from Mark chapter 11. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them and that they were permitted to take it. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Praise God in the highest heaven! So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went to the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. And he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. So when I read this growing up, I always kind of imagined that this would be an awesome thing to be a part of. Whether you're in the crowd or one of his uh, apostles or even being Jesus himself here. I mean, who wouldn't want to enter into your high school with people shouting praise at you uh, as you rode on whatever? Um, Wouldn't that be cool? Maybe not. I grew up in Oklahoma, though, so, you know. Um, This is a moment that that is awesome. And what we see in here, and what the first century audience would have seen, is that this is a royal procession. That that no one comes to a town like this unless it's the king. This is how the king comes to town. 
And so Jesus, when he comes, he's coming as the king, the one who will be anointed, who will be crowned king. Only Jesus' entrance isn't quite like how other kings enter. You know, if the director was writing this script, it's got all the same parts, but it doesn't look exactly like what they had thought. Again, if you're one of the apostles who was so excited to be following Jesus and all that he did, you might say, uh, this is a little bit of a letdown. Whereas you healed someone, we didn't even know you could do that, or you fed 5,000, this isn't exactly how a king enters into a town. Um, it, it looks a little different. And you can imagine how the apostles might have felt. But Jesus rides in on a donkey. And in part, that fulfills the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, which reads, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And so normally a king would enter the city and he would be riding on a great white horse that everyone could see him because he'd be sitting up high. And the, the crowds would be so large that he would have to be up high so you could see him. But we know from the gospel accounts of the story that the crowd probably isn't all that big. In fact, the, from Luke that Paul read earlier, it kind of just sounds like those who were already with Jesus, those are the only ones that are there. It's his followers are there. People aren't streaming out of their homes in Jerusalem to, to, let Jesus, to um, excitingly welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. This is his followers. And more than that, they couldn't see him anyways because he's not on a great white horse. He's on the colt of a donkey. This is a lowly entrance into Jerusalem. So our, tech, our Bibles always read this is a triumphal entry. And in some ways it is because this is the king coming. This is the king unlike the king that you thought you would have. This is a better king, only to all of their human eyes, it would look different. It has all the same parts, but it's kind of like saying, let's go see a great musical. And when you had in mind going to Broadway in New York City, you actually went and saw the high school version. That's kind of what is happening here. Or, or it reminds me, when we first moved to Dallas, we... Savannah and I were going to take Stephen to the Sandy Lake Amusement Park. And I don't know if you guys have have heard of that. It's up in Carrollton. But it it, it was August, and it had the word amusement park in it. So I thought, this will be fun. This will be great. Like I said, it was August. It wasn't fun or great. And when they called it amusement park, they might should have just said one measly ride. Um, And Stephen was not yet two, and and he couldn't even ride the ride. And so... um, It's kind of like you're geared up to go to Six Flags and you end up at the Sandy Lake Amusement Park. And so that's kind of what's happening here. They're getting ready for the king, only it's not exactly what they thought. And this is the theme ever since Mark chapter 8 that Jesus is setting before his followers. That they kind of, they kept expecting more and more greatness They expected more and more glory, and Jesus will show them what it means to have glory. See, in this moment, and in many like this, Jesus shows them that his way is the descending way. That Jesus is on a downward trajectory, not 
an up upward trajectory. And in doing so, we find out a little bit about who Jesus is. I love this quote from Henry Nouwen that says, We can say that the downward pull, as we see this in Jesus Christ, is not a movement away from God, but a movement toward him as he really is. A God for us who came not to rule, but to serve. See, in Jesus, we have a Christ, and we have a God, and we have a King that looks different than anyone ever expected. This isn't what they thought. What they thought was someone who would come with power and with might to overthrow those who oppressed them and to bring in their new kingdom with power. But Jesus' way isn't like that. Before this, they, they may have even worshipped gods. But this, their, their goal was to rule over humanity, but Jesus isn't like other gods. Jesus is a God who came to serve not to rule. Jesus is a God, you could say, that stoops. Because Jesus is God who left on high next to his Father for us. And this is good news. This isn't what we thought, but this is better than we could have ever hoped for. This is a God who gave up everything for you and for me. In fact, Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? This is who our Jesus is. He doesn't hold it over your head. He comes with grace and mercy and love. This is who he is, and this is good news for you and for me. Because if we had it the way we would have wanted, it would not be as good as it is with Jesus. We would have never known to ask for this God and out of his love, he gave it for you and for me. Imagine giving up the place of highest honor for those who may reject you, who do often reject him. But that's who Jesus is, and that's who Jesus was then. He knew, leaving the throne room on high, coming to earth, that it wouldn't be, he wouldn't be met just with love. He would be rejected by men. He's rejected even though he is worthy, and he calls us worthy, we are the ones who reject him more than anything. But Paul, before he wrote this, before he started that, that song in Philippians chapter 2, he wrote this in verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. The way that Jesus lived, the way that Jesus is and was, is how he calls for you and for me to be. See, when Jesus calls us, he calls us to follow we're not called to be fans of Jesus. We're not called to be admirers of Jesus. It isn't enough to think highly of him, to have a good opinion of him. You and I are called to follow him. And that includes in his descending way. See, back in Mark chapter 8, when he set the stage for his apostles, he says, if you would follow me, you would pick up your cross. You would lay down your life. Because if you lose your life, then you can save it. 
So we follow Jesus even in the descending way, even on the road to the cross. Because we know that Jesus has rewritten the script. His way is different. And it means that our lives are called to look different also. We don't look exclusively for the upward trajectory. We're not looking out for ourselves, but we are called to live as Jesus lived. Because the Jesus way is the way of suffering, but is also the way to healing. It is the way of humiliation, but also the way to the resurrection. The Jesus way is the way of persecution, oppression, martyrdom, and even death, but also the way to the full disclosure of God's love. And I struggle with this, but I know this to be true. That Jesus' way is countercultural and counter to anything we could think. That it is when we embrace the cross that we find resurrection, we find healing. And I struggle with this, and sometimes faith falters and doubt increases, and I wonder, is Jesus who he said he was? Is Jesus the kind of God that he said he was? And it's when you can trust that fact, and you can trust that Jesus is who he said he was, that it is in that moment that you will embrace the love from Jesus, and only then can you live as he lived. And so this is who we are called to be. We are called to follow Jesus. We are called to pick up our cross every day. Everything in Jesus points to his love for you and for me. And so we follow. It will be hard It will be uncomfortable, it will lead to suffering, and it will even lead to death. You may have to put to death yourself, put to death your own dreams, your own hopes, your own goals, but we give it all to him. In fact, for you and I, many of us have already put ourselves to death. This is the act that we follow when we take on Jesus in baptism. We give ourselves over to him. So what else is there to do but to follow? We have given ourselves over to him. We have given our very lives to him. And so we follow him and we trust him with that. See, I think we become like the gods that we serve, like the gods that we follow. And if we proclaim to follow Jesus, then that means we join him on this downward trajectory. See, the crowds were fickle. The crowds shouted Hosanna on one day and deserted him the next. And we know that by the grace of the crucified and risen Lord, we will share in his glory. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. He went willingly to the cross for you and for me. He was despised and rejected. But we know that this is King Jesus. And we know that in the end, he is the one who wins. Revelation chapter 19, John's vision here would read, Then I saw heaven opened. And a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. For he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. This is King Jesus. This is Jesus who is faithful and who is true. And for you and for me, the only question that remains for us is, will we follow him? Will we join him in the life that he calls us, in this downward trajectory to put others before ourselves to lay down our life and to pick up our cross? This is the question for you and for me. In closing, I'll invite the praise team back to the stage. I think for many of us today, in our day and age, we have 
believed that our faith would be easy. We have believed incorrectly that there would not be hardship, that there would not be struggle. But Jesus himself, over and over again, would say, if you would follow me, you would pick up your cross. You give up your life, then you will gain it. And so the question for us today is, do you trust that this is Jesus, that he will raise you to life again? Because this is King Jesus. And we know that the tomb is empty. And we know that Jesus conquers your sin and your death. And so we follow him, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. Because we know that Jesus has rewritten the script. And that it might look abnormal to those outside, but we know that in Jesus, we will have the glory that he has already claimed. We give up our lives to follow him. And maybe today you've never made that commitment, and the baptistry is ready. If you want to give your life over to him, do it today. Don't delay any longer. If you need people to walk with you, to pray with you, our shepherds and their wives will be around the room. We want to walk with you in this journey. Let's say yes to Jesus and follow him. Let's stand and sing.